Hello and welcome to series two of the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell Shaw. In 2018, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And since then, I've made it my mission to make the most of each and every passing day. This has led me to cycle on a tandem from Bristol to Beijing. COVID got in the way and I had to take a break, but now I'm back on the road. Before you hear this episode's conversation, here's a little snippet of what has happened to me on my travels over the last week. So I hit a pretty important milestone of the restart of Bristol to Beijing this week, and that was getting to the Danube River. This wasn't something I expected to be particularly significant, but I was amazed at the sense of purpose that I felt when I reached the river and I was like, right, this is my path. It's going to get me all the way through Eastern Europe and to the Black Sea. And I really felt like as long as I can stay on this river, I'm going to be making progress towards Beijing. Now, the flip side to this came when I heard that Hungary had closed its borders. So actually, I can't follow the Danube River through Hungary. I came up with a plan B and I thought, right, I'm sorted. I'm going to go east through Slovakia into Ukraine directly. And then I found out that Ukraine had closed its borders. So then I came up with a plan C, which is to head south from Bratislava, go through Austria, go through Slovenia, and then across northern Croatia to rejoin the Danube in Serbia. It's going to add a few days of cycling on, but this is going to keep the ride moving, I hope, and get to see some new countries along the way. The Danube itself has just been a pleasure to cycle along. It's flat, which makes a big difference when you're on a heavy tandem, and the miles just pass easily. This is a big relief compared to some more hilly cycling that I've done before, and it's made the riding really enjoyable. Up until yesterday, it's been very sunny. It's been a great chance to work on my late summer tan, and just enjoying being outside. There are these lush green trees. You just see the glitter of the sun on the river. And surprisingly, in the distance, there are actually hills. I thought the whole of the Danube area would be a flat floodplain, but it's not. There are plenty of mountaintop churches. It has been a bit of an adjustment having to camp. I had a great time with a lot of company on my first night on the Danube. There were probably thousands of mosquitoes and no matter how I tried to cover myself up, they still managed to find a way to nestle up right in close. But it has just been incredibly beautiful, very tranquil, very peaceful and secluded. I had a bit of a different camping experience the following night. I was going to wash in the Danube, I'd stripped off my clothes, getting ready to get into the water, and then all of a sudden a speedboat comes round the corner and I'm like, oh goodness me. So I dive back behind Chris, trying to scrabble around for a pair of running shorts. Yeah, pretty open, but I'm just not sure I want to be doing this whole nudist thing. It's not really the kind of PR that we're looking to do with Bristol to Beijing. I want to tell you about someone I met on the route just inside of Austria in Engelhartzel in the Holmes guesthouses in Sherlock Holmes. And to me, this just looked like any old sort of beer garden, gasthouse place. And to my surprise, I asked for a coffee and I just got this most beautiful flat white with a fern done in latte art and then a little string of hearts around the edge of the cup. And it was just uh, incredible, tasted beautiful, looked amazing. 
I was talking to the guy who owned the place, and it turns out that he spent eight years working out in China for an Austrian steel company. And at the age of 43, having worked for the company for 20 years, he just decides to pack all of this in. He'd met his wife out in China, and together they went to New Zealand, where he went back to university, studied forestry and agriculture for three years, and then he worked as a shepherd for six years. So a total departure from what he'd been doing before. He was saying that he just wanted a completely different pace of life and a completely different way of living, and he sounded a lot happier for it. Just under a year ago, he returned close to his home village where his parents are, and he set up his retirement project, this guest house and coffee shop. I would highly recommend it. And so if you do happen to be cycling on the Danube, you should check out that place in Engelhartzel. And he's a really cool guy. This last week, I was joined on the tandem by a pretty inspirational guy. That's my dad. I thought it would only be fair to give him an opportunity to say how he found his time with Chris and, unfortunately, also with me. Do have a listen. Well, as soon as she went out to do the bike maintenance and then had the opportunity to spend the first few days cycling, and that was good fun. Bavaria's been gorgeous green hills, rolling countryside, spread with farms. Couldn't be more delightful if it tried. We had nice sunny weather and we had the chance to go and meet people. I was also asked by Luke to do some of the recording on the way as well. And that's been really interesting to have the chance to talk to Luke about some of the things that he's come across, some of his feelings. It's been fascinating to meet friends on the way. It's amazing who will talk to you on the back of a tandem. You'll discover that all sorts of people want to stop and chat just because it's unusual. Then they understand what the message is behind it, and that's even better. We met a few friends, for example, Bossy, who is a friend of a friend, came with us for a couple of days where he was on the back of the tandem. I borrowed his bicycle. And to be honest, that was jolly hard work. It was a chance to see how different people thought and felt and drink a lot of coffee. Luke's a bit of a coffee fiend. For some reason, I think coffee places make people chat. So it's a chance to go and see lots of people, meet lots of people, do things differently, a chance to relax, look at the skies, count the stars. And I think that's absolutely fantastic. Thoroughly recommended. It doesn't matter whether it's for one day or a month. I think it's just a really nice thing to be able to do. And now it's time to hear from someone who is also incredibly inspirational and in fact world-renowned, Chrissy Wellington. A brief note, this conversation was recorded in late August and of course things particularly to do with Parkrun have since changed. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Before going on to perhaps what Chrissy Wellington is best known for, I think it's really important to talk about some of the things that Chrissy has done from the very beginning, because I think that gives a much broader take on what makes Chrissy tick, as I understand it. You started working for DEFRA back in the early 2000s, working on the Sustainable Development Goals, found that there was a bit too much paper pushing in that role, and then went out to work in Nepal for Rural Reconstruction Nepal. And that is where Chrissy began to explore and show some considerable aptitude on the bike, which led into triathlon. Now, Chrissy has been the World Ironman champion, not once, not twice, 
four times, which is just a kind of unbelievable as someone who does a bit of triathlon themselves and kind of occasionally wins a race to think winning not just once, but four times at the world championships is incredible. But I think what's really interesting is Chrissy, you appear to be much more than that. Also getting involved in, in Park Run as the head of health and well-being. And the time that I've, I've this is, as usual, a, um, a virtual interview. But there's one time when I... I saw Chrissy, and this is a big moment for me. I was running on the Downs Park in Bristol with a couple of friends, and we were running along, you know, feeling pretty good, you know, decent runners. And here we were, and we were running. We saw this woman coming the other way, and she gave us this just sunbeam of a smile. Yeah, and, and then we kind of ran on, and we all just looked at each other and was like, Was that Chrissy? Wow, <laughs> Chrissy. <laughs> and it was just this incredible, warm, genuine smile. And I think that perhaps sums up Chrissy Wellington. Chrissy, it is amazing to have you on the Facing Up podcast. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. It's interesting to hear your your own story recounted like that. But I'm especially pleased that I have my game face on when we <laughs> encountered each other in Bristol. <laughs> you know, there are occasions where I'm uh, gr- grimacing rather than smiling nowadays <laughs> when I'm exercising. So that was a, a happy day for me. <laughs> Glad we caught you on one of those. It might have been a bit more dispiriting. Like, oh, crikey, just got blanked. <laughs> Chrissy, you've done so much, which seems on the face of it to be incredibly challenging for a lot of people doing an Ironman triathlon, 2.6 mile swim, 112 mile bike, followed by a marathon would be a huge challenge in itself. But what I'm really intrigued about is for you, what has actually been the biggest challenge of your life? When I reflect back on my life, I see it as like a tree, like branching in some amazing ways. And some of those I could have anticipated, many of them couldn't. And I think that there's been challenges every single step of the way. And I think the biggest challenge I face and anyone faces is overcoming fears and making change. And I've done that in many different contexts and people might think it's been easy you know transitioning Uh, initially I wanted to go into law then I reached a fork in the road and and then I did my MA in international development then I got a job working for DEFRA then there was another fork in the road when I gave up quite a responsible position I would have been working on uh, G8 and EU sustainable development policy to live and work in Nepal and then subsequent to that as you recall that you know made the change to do Ironman the biggest challenge for me if I reflect back has been the transition from professional sport to quote unquote real life so retirement as they like to call it (laughs) and I think on a par with that has been learning to parent. (laughs) That's been a phenomenal challenge. And I think any parent would would describe it as such. It's been so rewarding and enriching. But for me, learning that emotional control that enables you to be the best parent that you can has been hugely, hugely challenging. So I think both of those in terms of the changes I've enacted in my life, but principally the, the the change where I moved from professional sport to you know normal life and then also the change in becoming a parent that's 
that's fascinating. <laughs> Firstly, that you know, learning to become a parent, that's something that a, a very large number of people do. Um, very few people do Ironmans and, you know, even if you do them to a high level. And yet one of the things you find so challenging is common to very large chunk of humanity. I, I think that's really interesting. I want to come back to this sort of idea of change and how you're overcoming your fears and then going on to perhaps discussing about being a parent. What were the fears that you had when you were realizing you wanted to go from professional and, and retire, I suppose, or not retire? Yeah, uh, transition, I guess we call it. It's the same. It's analogous to any transition that people might make in their lives. So for me, I was in a career that fulfilled me, was incredibly gratifying satisfying, enriching. It enabled me to push myself beyond anything that I thought was possible, to test my limits, to achieve more than I ever thought I could, to be, you know, on top of the world stage. It enabled me to forge much stronger relationships with my my family because they came along for that amazing ride. I met my partner, now my husband, through through the sport. I was able to travel. So that, that kind of aspect was very enriching, very important, very fulfilling. And then you've got, for someone that's very driven, determined, likes structure and routine, you have all of that as a professional athlete. So your life is quite regimented and you are focused you have this single-minded pursuit of a goal, a single mm. goal. And so you've got that clarity of focus and you've got that validation of identity wedded to you as an athlete. So every day my value was wedded to my performance in training. And then also my identity and my value was wedded to who I was as an athlete and what I achieved. And that, all of those aspects, is a really, really difficult to transition away from. Because when you make that change, you're stepping into the unknown. You don't know what you're good at anymore. You don't know where your value lies. You don't know what what skills and, and assets you have to offer. You've lost your routine. You don't know where to live because you you know you lived in the place that was purposeful for your sport. And yes, you lose a lot of the adulation, public adulation, um, that becomes quite uh, addictive is, is the wrong word, but you, you feed off that, right? So I think for all those reasons, it's really challenging. You feel incredibly lost, really lost. The reason to do it, because the easiest thing I could have done as four-time world champion was to remain a professional athlete. I didn't retire injured. I didn't retire disillusioned. I didn't retire having not been selected for a team. I retired because I knew that I had to challenge myself in a different way. One of the things I find really intriguing about this is that as I read your life from an outsider's perspective, here is someone who seems to be motivated by larger goals, you know, working towards the sustainable development goals, working out uh, in international development in Nepal. And so it's really interesting for me to hear that actually there was still a large part of your identity and it sounds like self-worth that came from winning 
races and you know being an excellent athlete and that's something I'm almost surprised to hear because I'm kind of wondering what success looks like to you how do you have the biggest impact on the world and did that also affect why you moved away from triathlon I think for me success is fulfilling a purpose and a passion and I have many of those and at different points in my life, I've focused on on different aspects. So if, as, a, as a young person, I was dedicated to academic excellence. And that's really where I focused my my the entirety of my energy. So sport was something I did for fun. I mean, I, I wasn't even county standard at Uh, swimming I swam for a local swimming club I paid netball for the school so sport was something I did socially and success for me was attaining the highest grades that I possibly could and then initially working as a civil servant success for me was climbing that career ladder so progressing up the hierarchy and assuming greater responsibility on issues of global importance But as you rightly said, I became slightly disillusioned with that. And I realized that that measure of success was not gratifying to me because, as again, you rightly said, a lot of it was rhetoric on paper. And my definition of success at that point was, am I able to affect change on the ground? Right. Am I able to, in a very small way, address some of the horrific issues that plague our planet and so that's why I went to Nepal and then when I was a professional athlete it's an iterative process you know so initially I didn't set out as a professional athlete ever aspiring to be an Ironman athlete I wanted to be an Olympic distance athlete and it was my coach that kind of transitioned me away Um, from the shorter course into the longer distance triathlon and it was only when he started putting me basically with my arm behind my back because I I wasn't convinced that I was a good Ironman athlete because I had no benchmark he put me into these races and I proved to myself including at the world championships the first time what I was capable of and then you have your definition of success right so it's it's iterative when you prove to yourself what you're capable of you can and achieve more but for me that was never the sole motivation to your point about me not being obsessed with winning but yes of course I'm I am an incredibly competitive person and I make no apology for that Um, and when I knew that I was capable of winning that is what I wanted to achieve but that on in its own is not enough. And I knew right from the outset that sport is an incredibly selfish pursuit. Oh, it, it really is. It's all about you and your goal and what you want to achieve day to day and, you know, m- more, more broadly on a global scale. And for me, sport was always a platform to do something more. So I was motivated 
success for me was achieving something in sport so that I could achieve something out of it. So success to me has meant different things at different stages of my life. And as I've transitioned away from sport, now I've had to get my head around the fact, to your point that you made earlier, that success doesn't always have to be these globally recognisable, record-breaking feats. Success for me now is contentment with family success in 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 my career it's seeing our our daughter progress it's having a a a rich you know relationship with my husband all of those things are success and they're not going to make headlines Mm -hmm. and that's quite hard when you're used to doing that but also I think maybe as I wouldn't say mature but maybe it's become less important to me now to prove something to other people maybe I I don't have more to prove. That's really fascinating. And it sounds like, you know, from at one point, your identity was very much based on winning races. Now it's very much more based on being happy in your life, particularly your family with with your daughter, with your husband. And you use this word contentment. And it's I think it's a fascinating balance. The, you know, someone who does also want to achieve stuff, that balance between want striving to achieve and then also being happy with what you're doing and who you are as someone who you know, isn't changing the world it's it's a really fascinating balance I find yeah I think you know I've derived so much satisfaction and pride from from what I achieved in sport don't get me wrong but I also realize that it hasn't really changed me as a person and it's achievement in sport is quite a it's quite nebulous because the more you achieve the more you want so you want you've won one you want to win two you've won two you want to win three you won three you want to win four and at some point it doesn't maybe that just doesn't scratch that itch anymore (laughs) you know it just doesn't maybe you realize that it's not as gratifying and that life can challenge you in in other in other ways and so when you are on this like roller coaster change moving from professional and you're in that transition period and you're starting a family with these you know this incredible learning curve of becoming a parent how did you deal with all that that uncertainty that change um all these shifting parameters and goals what actually got you through it was there a mindset that you had or an, an acceptance I used various strategies to get me through that time in my life. So most importantly is to not panic. It's the same in a race, right? When things are going really badly, you know that it's ephemeral and you know that at some point you will come out of it. And it's the same with this. So maybe sitting with that discomfort for a while. So as an athlete, as an endurance athlete, we have to endure, right? And we almost embrace, we expect it and we embrace that discomfort, right? So I had to sit with the discomfort of not knowing who I was and not knowing what I was doing with my life, but have faith that I am the type of person that is able to carve out opportunities. I leant heavily on those around me and spoke to them at length. I spoke to a lot of other people that had been through a similar process I was kind to myself 
because often we can be really, really self-critical and I tried not to be. <laughs> I tried to be kind to myself and I just tried to set new goals that excited me in a different way. So at that point, I was kind of a little bit scared to enter in the years after I retired to enter like races where I had this kind of metric based outcome. So a marathon, a road marathon, for example, Mm -hmm. where there's a a very clear (laughs) indication of of whether you've been successful. And how fast have you gone in Ironman? I was scared to do a standalone in case people looked at me and said, well, she's not as fit as she used to be. Or imagine what you can do if you haven't got to swim and bike before. And I was thinking, well, I'm, I'm just not that athlete anymore. And so I almost eschewed those kind of more kind of competitive metric based race for like endurance challenges. So I set new goals. So, so we did, for example, we ran up each of the three peaks in the UK and, and cycled between them, tried to do it in 48 hours with a bunch of friends. I did Chase the Sun, which is a sportif from the east to the west coast of the UK. I did some cycling in, in the Alps with groups of people. So all of those things were really challenging for me but they weren't, I guess, my, I, I didn't have an outcome goal in terms of a time or a position, something like that. So so having those other goals and then also with, in terms of, of my career, obviously you move from professional sport and I was lucky to, to make a living. You know, that, that isn't going to last forever. So you need to be confident that you are able to have a new and, and successful career. And so I started to network and, and just started to speak to people and found out, tried to find out what my passion and my purpose were again. Mm. And it's, it was a long term process. And then having come out the other side, I realized that it was a really important process to go through and I think a lot of I mean a lot of athletes have reasons for for carrying on in sport but a lot of them I imagine are are quite nervous and apprehensive about stepping into that unknown of post (laughs) professional sport and and I can really empathize with that and I hope that now a lot more support is given to athletes at all stages of their career to effectively transition away from it, to have the skills, the experience, the confidence to be able to to have a life beyond sport. It's, it's really interesting hearing you say this because one of the things that has come up a few times on the Facing Up podcast is actually a few different guests have talked about the challenges of moving from one career to another, the uncertainty that goes with it, the very different parameters for success. And again, it seems here that the fact that you are able to still challenge yourself, still be successful, but for those two types of success to be very different and not really comparable to allow you to move into a new phase. It's just got to be, sometimes it's really hard to know what you're passionate about. What am I interested in? It's very cliched. Oh, you've got to follow your passion, follow your passion. But people are like, well, well, I don't know. I don't know. So how do you know? Well, you just throw yourself into things. And I know that I am sitting here blessed with the opportunity to do just that, to be able to seize opportunities. But that process of self-questioning and exploration is really, really important. Taking ourselves out of our comfort zone, doing something new, 
I mean, it doesn't have to be a, a career change or moving overseas or leaving a partner or something like that. But just moving yourself to a place where you feel those butterflies <laughs> is really, really enriching, I think. I would completely agree when it, the best decisions I've had in my life, it's like, oh, this, this is exciting. Like, I don't know how it's going to end, but this is exciting. Yeah. And I love what you're saying about, you know, so often we're told to follow our passions. And that almost seems to be the wrong statement. It's sort of because that's assuming, as you said, you know what the passions are. It's sort of just try a whole raft of new things. And then at the end of that, see what you're passionate about. So it sort of almost should be like, just try. But people are scared to fail, you know, me me included. But I just look back at my life and I think, wow, if I'd have... Because I was in two minds about whether to become a professional triathlete. And if I had if I had not taken that step, my life would not look like it does now. And, and that that's always that's a constant reminder to me never to look back and, and think what if. And even becoming a parent on a personal note, I was never like hugely, hugely maternal and convinced that at some point we were going to have children. But I look at our daughter and I think, wow, imagine <laughs> had we not embarked on that that new journey because we're scared about our life changing or scared about the impact it might might have on travel or something like that. And yeah, I think I never want to look back and think, what if? I never want to be left wondering. And I only think that failure is just an opportunity, isn't it? You know, you don't do something, you don't like something, you don't achieve it. Well, you, you grow. Absolutely. You wrote a book, Life Without Limits. <laughs> and, and I also know you're very passionate about promoting and encouraging particularly, you know, women to, to get into sport, to take opportunities. And I was just wondering for you, you've talked about your life being various different branches and various different things happening. But was there a time, a particular pivot point where you realized that you could take on challenges and actually make a success of things despite the uncertainty? It's an iterative process of testing the water and realizing what you're capable of. So I started running when I was doing my MA aged what was I 24 ish <laughs> and <laughs> I'd not run before I discounted running it wasn't for me I went bright red I didn't like it um went even redder but I needed a respite from the academic kind of pressure I was putting myself under and also I was in the grips of a, an eating disorder so it was for me an opportunity to to kind of manage my my weight and I started running and then I realized actually something that I discounted as not for me cutting a very long story short was actually something that I was good at um, and had a talent for and I ran the London Marathon and then someone suggested I do triathlon and again oh I was a little bit uh, no I've never done a triathlon and oh I don't know I've never really ridden a well I've never ridden a road bike oh we'll show you we'll lend you a bike and I dip my toe in the water and again oh off we go mm -hmm. so for me sometimes it's just been dipping my toe in the water and 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 the same with professional sport. You know, I, like I said, I didn't go into it with these kind of grandiose plans of becoming World Ironman champion. 
I really didn't even know what an Ironman was. Um, and, I, you know, when I did, I just thought it was inconceivable. But then you start down that path and you train with those that are much more experienced and you have a benchmark and a barometer and, and you build that confidence. But in answer to your question, I think it's an iterative process. And as you do it more, it becomes learned and you gained confidence. But also when you don't achieve something, you realize actually the world doesn't crumble either. It's not this massive catastrophe that you've built it up to be in your mind. So I think that fear of failure is is still there. But if it wasn't, I'd be worried because it would mean that I was doing things that too easy, too well. safe. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a it's a process where you gradually build the confidence and knowing that you can and you said you know you you were dipping your toe both I think um, not just metaphorically but also literally also just that whole kind of diatribe was very much I and it's a it, it, it's a we right it's a team I don't often make decisions about doing things in isolation from those around me whether it's you know my husband now and and of course our child or my parents or my friends coaches all of those people I've, I've consulted with in deciding whether to make a change so I've not just done it on a, on a whim and not had all the kind of advice and information that I felt I, I need so I, I think it's really important to lean on others and especially if you're very independent it can be kind of considered like tantamount to weakness if you ask for advice ask for support say you're scared say you're nervous but I guess it is a it's a strength and I'm increasingly seeing it as a strength to be able to do that to be able to say I'm not that happy today I don't feel great or I don't you know I'm tired or all of or I'm nervous or scared all of those things because whereas previously I wouldn't have been so <laughs> good at that yeah well I guess that's that's a bit about being vulnerable in there but I completely agree what you're saying about leaning on others that's something that I found incredibly valuable to me in dealing with my own challenges and that brings yeah. us onto a question from the Clapham Chasers who were very interested to know <laughs> I have a, a very strong relationship with the Clapham Chasers <laughs> do you want to say hi <laughs> I think I should be an honorary member, actually. I think that they, um, I should have one of their vests with the kind of bluey green seas on them. But yeah, I know quite a number of them and um, they're a phenomenal club, actually. A great camaraderie, great banter um, and some really talented athletes, actually. Well, I'm, I'm sure after this, they will be sending you over um, a top <laughs> hint, hint. We got a question from them wondering, you know, Parkrun has this incredible network of volunteers who make, you know, Parkrun happen week in, week out. And they were wondering, you know, what can other triathlon running cycling clubs learn from Parkrun about getting volunteers, making it something in volunteers people want to do? Because it seems to be something that Parkrun have done very well. What's your thought on this? That's a really good question and not one I've ever been asked in the context of a podcast like this. So that's an excellent question. Parkrun views volunteering as a form of participation that is equal to walking, jogging, running at the events at the junior parkrun or the 5k part run so we see volunteering we value volunteering as as a form of participation and we nuance the language around volunteering all too often we hear that 
volunteering is about giving up your time so that someone else can do something. And we appreciate that people are spending time volunteering, but we don't use the narrative around giving up time because we feel an evidence, empirical evidence shows that volunteers as accrue as many benefits because of the role that they have as those that are actually um, engaging as as walkers, joggers or, or runners. So I think a lot of it is around the language that you use and expressing the benefits or articulating, sorry, the benefits that the volunteer will accrue from what they do rather than simply you're giving up so someone else can achieve. Although there is value in people spending time doing that. There's a great mentoring structure within park run there's a lot of mutual support which is really really important there I wouldn't even say low barrier to entry there is zero barrier to entry so people can come volunteer having had no experience having never done a park run before and that's really really important people might be put off volunteering because they feel that they're not skilled enough um, they haven't got enough experience they don't know enough whereas our barriers to entry is is zero and that's really really important and we also recognize volunteers celebrate volunteers through the milestone t-shirts as well so that you can have a really visible recognition of of volunteering as a really valued form of of participation so those are just some of the ways off, off the top of my head there are there are many many more but it was a really really good question but yeah as you say it shows how a mass participation physical activity opportunity can be delivered with a huge phenomenal network of volunteers and only Globally, 45 staff in this country, 23. Wow, that so is it's, unbelievable. It's incredibly lean, but it shows that that, that that volunteer network is the glue that holds it all together, really. That is just amazing. I mean, Park Run was one of the things I loved most and really motivated me running when I was going through chemotherapy like having, you know, I think it's amazing the way that different people can take different things from it and it's something I'm incredibly grateful for existing as an institution we've had an amazing conversation Chrissy but before I let you go there are three questions that I ask every guest basically because I want to leech off your knowledge and uh, improve myself so first of all where is your favorite or most significant place am I allowed to or just one you can have two. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm very kind I'm, I'm pretty I'm a pushover to be honest. Kind. Hawaii <laughs> because it was the place where my life changed forever that's um, where the world championships is it's where the world championships is and Nepal because living working in Nepal and then traveling in Nepal lastly with Tom my husband has shown me more about me as a person and, and about the world than and any other place I've ever been and yeah it holds a very special place in my heart wow i'm hoping i might be able to nip into nepal on my cycle ride so let me know because i i still have a a, a network of of friends there that will be that will willingly support you in or really ruin my legs on the bike as well by the sounds <laughs> things of their friends with you chrissy your favorite piece of music hmm. uh, <laughs> I want to choose something that reminds me of my family and 
it's you are my sunshine. And we used to, my husband and I used to sing it to our daughter. We still do some mornings, every single morning when she woke up. And we have it on a kind of a picture on the, on the wall. The words are in a picture on the wall um, in our kitchen. So, yeah, just a, a song that means a lot to us as a family. That's, that's really beautiful. And your favourite or most significant book? It's a book called Dream Animals. And it's the book that we read our daughter most often. It was given to us by a very, very special friend um, that I met in Nepal, Susie. She lives in Oregon. And when our daughter was nine months old, we took her traveling around the world. Amazing. And the first stop was the west coast of the States. And we um, met up with Susie and Susie gave us that book. And so we traveled the world with it and we we still read it regularly to, to Esme. So that's my favorite book. <laughs> it's not just a book, but it's also a travel companion and yes. done some miles. Yeah. It's a little dog-eared now. <laughs> Well, it's the best books. They're well used. Thank you so much, Chrissy. It's been a fascinating conversation. Chrissy, I know you're an incredibly busy woman and you have a daughter you need to say goodnight to. Thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak to me. But everyone listening to the Facing Up podcast, I massively appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. And all the best with everything that you do. You're, you're amazing. You're an inspiration to everyone and to me. Thank, Thank you. you.